We started Jeremiah a month or two ago, whenever that was. Jeremiah, uh, who was in Judah, he lived uh, and prophesied for like 40 years. So over kind of a changing landscape of uh, situations in Judah, he began prophesying during the reign of good King Josiah, who really led the nation to make reforms, but it didn't seem to be anything other than skin deep for the people. I believe Josiah was very sincere and committed to God. Remember, he started reigning as an eight-year-old, started seeking the Lord when he was 16. But for the people, they conformed to what Josiah said. He was a popular king, but as soon as he was killed, they reverted right back to idolatry and wickedness under the leadership of three of his sons who were kings in various time periods and one grandson. And uh, so Jeremiah prophesied during all that time, and then finally Judah, uh, and three waves were taken into captivity, and Jeremiah even continued after that, stayed in Jerusalem with a handful of people, and eventually was drugged down to Egypt with them. This, these initial chapters of Jeremiah, we do not have, like, dates given, uh, and it's not necessarily in chronological order. But the basic themes are the wickedness, the sinfulness of God's people, of Judah during this time, and the punishment that they're going to receive. And uh, certainly that's what uh, Jeremiah says in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is really his call. But chapter 2, he uses a lot of illustrations to show how wicked Israel was. He particularly focuses in on the idea that Israel, Judah, um, was like married to God. But they were unfaithful by making covenants with other nations and worshiping idols. It's like having some other woman in your life. And, uh, or some other man, in this case, in your life. So that's, the, uh, that's kind of the framework that Jeremiah is working from as we start into chapter 3. And uh, so would somebody read chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 5? If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him, and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whole of many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights, and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers, like an era in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and the spring rain has not come. You have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. Really here, the Lord is reprimanding his people for the flippant way, just kind of the light-hearted way that they would abandon him and then act like it really wasn't anything. And so he goes back to the law. And he said, now look, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Now, that's based upon the law in the Old Testament about that. I don't know how many of you know that law. Do you know what the law was in the Old Testament if a man divorces his wife and she remarries? 
he could never have her back. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 is very explicit about that. Once she remarried, she could never go back to her first husband, not even if her second husband divorced her, not even if her second husband died. Once her husband divorces her and she remarries, there is never again to be a relationship with her first husband. That was the law in Deuteronomy 24. God is the husband. She's his wife. He's divorced her for infidelity. And she's joined herself to other men. Does she just think she can sweet talk her way back into a relationship with God anytime she wants to? As if nothing ever happened? You know, that seems to be the idea of this. Is she's, she rejects God as if, oh, no big deal. I can just come back anytime I want to. You know, what would you think? Can you imagine being a husband to a woman who starts running around on you? And then one day she says, I'm coming home. Would that, would that be okay with you? Like no apology, no repentance? Maybe she's like, mm, you know, I want to come back home for a day or two. That okay? You know, she just kind of, I'm kind of hungry. Can I come back home and eat? And uh, then I'll be gone again. How many, how many men would say, oh yeah, sure. Just, just be here anytime you want to. And when you don't, that's okay. How many of us are like that with God? You know, uh, we, we think anytime we get in trouble, we can turn to him and he'll take care of us. And then we'll go giving our lives to other uh, lovers, to others who are more important than God is in our life, except when we happen to need him once in a while. Do you think we can treat God that way? But that's exactly what they were doing. And so he's trying to use this question to wake them up and say, do you realize what this is and how lightheartedly you're treating this marriage, this, this relationship? He says, will not that land be complete, completely polluted? But you're a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. There's a translational question a little bit in the end of verse 1. You may have something that's a little different. But under this translation, the idea is you just do all this, and then you just come back home as if everything's okay. Comments and thoughts about that? It would help us if we'd think more like that in our own relationship with God. If we would realize that when we turn away from God to other things, that we're really betraying our marriage vows to God. You know, when, if you've got some favorite sin that you turn to every time you just get down or bored or whatever, or some other commitment in your life that most of the time is more important than God, God feels betrayed by that. Okay, comments? Look at what he says in verse 2. He's describing their attitude. Okay, Luan's here. Let me uh, call him just a second. Take me a moment. I'll let him see you guys too. You can see him. A gente está em Jeremias capítulo 3, versículo 2. Eu vou deixar eles te verem e você ver eles. 
Don't ask that now, dude. He said, hi, are you good? Yeah, but say about you follow the Eastern in class, I pass. Yeah, okay. Tá bom. Então, eu vou te deixar aqui. Uh, você não vai ver ninguém, mas uh, acho que você vai conseguir ouvir, okay? Alright, so in Jeremiah 3.2, he says, now I want you to look at what you're doing. And what were they doing in verse 2? Do you understand? Offering themselves to anybody. Absolutely. Judah was sparing no effort to catch lovers. She's like some desperate woman who's practically ambushing them. You know, a lot of times we talk about being overcome by temptation. You know, the temptation was just surrounding us and we couldn't get away from it. And so it just, it just overwhelmed us. Well, that's not her. She is laying in wait like an Arab in the desert. And I think the idea is the Arab in the desert would like uh, be hidden on the, uh, you know, on the, on the way, on the highway, and would jump out and mug people or rob people or whatever. Well, she's like that. She's, she's just finding anybody that she can assault and give herself to. And, and she's doing this everywhere. Anywhere, she doesn't care who sees her. You know, this is not some clandestine affair. It's known publicly. It's like she is so desperate to get away from God that she will be involved with anybody who comes by. Isn't that amazing? That's the way God sees her. Are we like that? Do we just almost give ourselves just almost pursue any relationship, any pleasure, anything else to put in the place of God in our life. You know, sometimes it can be just a succession of things. First, it's this thing we just give ourselves to, and then it's that thing, and then it's something else. What does God feel when we do that? Like, we'll just go for anything just to get away from Him? That's what He was seeing in them. Comments and thoughts on that. Let me verify with Luan here a second that he can hear this, okay? Luan, we'll say it's that will be okay. Okay. Okay, that was. Um, and then in in three, what had God done to try to alert the people to their sin? Get back their blessings. Yes, and particularly which blessing? Rain. Do you know why God might have especially kept the rain back? What was the lover they always seemed to have the habit of going after? Baal. Right? Baal. And Baal was the god of fertility, which mostly meant rain, weather, storms, all those kinds of things. Exactly. And so, if God stops the rain, who's really in control of fertility? <laughs> you know, God is attacking Baal at the area where he was supposed to be his strongest. That's a pretty powerful lesson uh, in, in that. And uh, that's what God did. <coughs> And how did that affect the people in verse 3? 
hard-headed. Boy, they were. They were just unwilling to be brought to their senses. Just brazen as any prostitute. Just unfazed. God, you know, throws the book at them. And they are just continuing to insist on following Baal and, for that matter, any other god they could find. Um, so, you know, this, he's really trying to show them the seriousness of their sin. You know, this is what's going on in their life. And then they have the gall in verse 4 and verse 5 to do what with God? Why are you always mad at me? Yeah! God! We thought we were friends! Why aren't you there for me? Don't you see people doing that sometimes? Have you ever seen people who, who are practical atheists, you know, in their life? They don't think anything about God, but they get in trouble. You know, some bad thing happened. God, why aren't you coming through for me? Why are you letting me go through this? like you didn't care a thing about me and anything else until you get in trouble and then it's like you know you lay this try to lay a guilt trip on God that that's really even in human relationships that's outrageous I mean can you imagine a woman doing this guys you're married and your wife running around with every guy in the country and then then something goes bad for her and she's like well, I thought we were friends. I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. Well, right. You know how much love have you shown me? So she just kind of tries to, to smooth over anything and, and doesn't really acknowledge the depth of the breach in the relationship that she's caused by going after these other lovers. Man, this sounds, this sounds horrible, but it sounds a lot like we are. Thoughts and comments on that? Can you see ourselves in that? <coughs> Is God there only just to bless us, but there's no responsibility in our part? <coughs> there's no commitment that we need? You know, I mean, even in a human relationship, to reconcile takes a lot of effort. It's costly. You know, you can't just have this, oh, let's forget it, and go on attitude when you're the one who wronged somebody. I mean, you think even about a friendship you have. If your friend really betrays you, double crosses you and hurts you, and then waltzes back in and says, oh, just forget it. Wait a minute, forget it's easy for you to say you're not the one who was hurt. You know, let's just pretend nothing happened. Well, you can't just do that. You hurt me. You need to take responsibility for what you did. You know, but, but Judah was like, oh God, come on, be there for us, without ever even acknowledging what they had done, you know, to hurt the relationship. They thought of God as almost like this, this soft, indulgent friend that like was willing to put up with anything and, and all they had to do is say please and he'd do anything they wanted. You know, you, you've got friends maybe, maybe you have this. You know, have some permissive parent that you can, be you can see a friend just being really hateful to his parents or her parents 
and then just says, oh, please give me this, and they'll do it. You know, what kind of respect does a kid develop for a parent who's like that? Like none? God is not that kind of a parent. God is not a father that we can just say please, and no matter how we've treated him, he's just going to give us everything we want, but that's a lot of times how we look at God. So that's what they were saying. This, I, I think this section is about as strong as any in showing how horrible they were treating God and how presumptuous they were in this relationship with God. Stephen? There's a phrase that kind of pops to my mind, you know, uh, in order to get respect, you got to earn it. Yeah. Well, God earned it and they didn't show it. You know, because a parent who's indulgent doesn't earn it. And, and, uh, you know, you act without self-respect. If God were the kind of God that was just, you know, he didn't expect anything out of us, he'd just do anything for us, but, but he didn't expect anything, we wouldn't respect it. But God is acting in a respectable way. Bill? He also would not be a God that truly loved us and cared about us. That's exactly right. What would you think about a man whose wife was just like, uh, well, you mind if I spend the night with, you know, Joe tonight and John tomorrow night? And the husband said, I don't care, spend the night with whoever you want to. Well, I'll tell you one thing you know about that man. He does not love his wife. If he loved her, he would not just say, yeah, it's fine, just do whatever you want. A parent who does that doesn't love his kids. I understand that. The kids may get old enough, they have to make the decisions for themselves, but if the parent just doesn't care, the parent says, oh, it doesn't matter to me what you do. Well, you know he doesn't love you. She doesn't love you. So God loves us enough to care and to be hurt when we betray him. Thoughts and comments, Stephen? Verse, verse 5 is, is interesting where it says, will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? It kind of reminds me of Psalm 103, 9, or where it says he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. It's like a, that beautiful description of God's forgiveness which we like to run to Psalm 103, you know, and we've been sinful, and like, oh, look how beautiful God's forgiveness is. But we can't really enjoy that part of God's nature unless we're willing to change, unless we're willing to meet God's, you know, requirements and, and come back into a relationship with Him. Uh, we can, so many people want to say, oh, look how beautiful God is, look how forgiving, how merciful, how slow He is to anger. But that's for people with a penitent heart, with a broken heart, who come back to Him, you know, wanting to repent. Absolutely. Humbling ourselves, confessing our sins, repenting, those are hard things. We would rather just be able to say, everything's okay now, God, <laughs> and not have to take responsibility for what we've done. You know, that does not work. Remember how God would often ask questions um, like, where are you? What have you done? What's this lowing of the cattle that I hear? You know, that kind of a question in different stories in the Old Testament. Now, God didn't ask those questions because God was confused and he couldn't figure it out. He asked those questions to try to provoke the people to humble themselves, acknowledge their sin, and turn back to the Lord. Without 
the humility of repenting, confessing, and taking responsibility, we haven't really turned back to God. So we try to do this number on God where we just say, oh God, just forget it. No, you can't come back into a relationship that matters with a just forget it. We've got to go through the pain of acknowledging our sin. The guilt has to bother us. What does God want in restoring the relationship? A broken and contrite heart. The hardest thing we could ever give, but the most essential thing to reestablishing the relationship. Kimberly. Um, it reminds me of David in Psalm where he was really like heartbroken and stuff and really wanted... Um, the way he was speaking to God about his sin. <clears throat> yes. Exactly. Psalms like Psalm 51 are wonderful psalms to help us meditate on the kind of heart we need to have in coming back to God. There have been way too many times in my life where I just wanted to say a quick, forgive me, you know, sorry, it's okay now, right? You know, because I don't want to repent I don't want to grieve. I want to feel good. I want to be happy. And it does, it's not very happy to grieve our sin. But that's a part of the process in reestablishing the relationship. Bill. Blessed are those who mourn. <coughs> Amen. Yes. Other thoughts on this section? Okay, Jeremiah 3, would somebody read 6 through 11? The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? The faithless one, Israel, how she went up in every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the Lord. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treasure sister, Judah, saw. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and told the Lord. Because she took her horn and lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with them, free stone and truth. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return him with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So, he, uh, we're in the days of Josiah. And he says, think about what Israel did. Now, she was idolatrous in every possible way. When he mentions in verse 6, every high hill and every green tree, think about where they set up their idol altars, idol shrines. Why would they do it under the tree? Yeah, absolutely. A natural air conditioning. You know, a more pleasant environment. Because they would, you know, offer animals and sacrifice to Baal or other gods and then join in a meal, eating the, the barbecued meat and so forth. Well, it's more pleasant in the shade. Why would they do it on top of the hill? Makes you feel closer to God. Absolutely. Uh, any southern Indiana town nearly you want to go into along the Ohio River, guess what's on the highest point in the city? Catholic Church. You know, a lot of those cities have that. You know, because you feel closer to God the higher you get. So they would put their idol shrines 
under the trees, on top of the hills. He said, now you just look at Israel. You look at those places and you see how unfaithful she was to her marriage vows to me. And I thought, well, now she'll return. And she didn't. And Judah saw it. Now, what had happened to Israel a hundred years before? Assyrian captivity. Absolutely. Now, have you ever had this experience? Some of you are younger siblings. Have you ever seen something bad an older sibling did and the bad consequences it gave to them? Should you learn from that? You know, think about it, whatever. What if you have an older sibling that was a careless, reckless driver? and totaled two or three cars. Now what should the younger siblings learn from that? Don't want to drive like he or she did? You know, or whatever. I mean, it just makes sense. You know, uh, someone, else, someone has said, you know, we need to learn from the, from the other guy's tuition. You know, he pays the money to learn the lesson. Now we ought to have to learn without having to pay the money ourselves. You see the example, the bad example, and the consequence. So here's Israel, very idolatrous, goes into captivity. God thought, well, now her sister Judah, she'll learn from that. No. <laughs> you know, God divorced Israel. Judah didn't even pay attention. She was just as unfaithful to her marriage vows as what Israel had been. She had this kind of, uh, you know, casual, carefree attitude about her infidelity to God. She just polluted the land, verse 9, committed adultery with stones and trees. In other words, she made stones and wooden images her gods, that spiritual adultery, married to Jehovah and worshiping anything she could get her hands on. He says, now in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah, verse 10, did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. You know, she only verbally turned back to God. Now this all goes back again to Josiah's reforms. And Josiah, he's the king, and for whatever reason he was popular. And so he abolished idolatry. He destroyed a lot of the idol apparatus and so forth. And so they didn't worship idols. But you know, you cannot worship idols by government order. A government order can't take idols out of your heart. And so Josiah died the next king, his son Jehoahaz, reigned three months. And already, in those three months, the nation had gone back to the idols. What does that tell you about their heart? Yeah. You can do the same thing. H have you been in a situation where maybe your parents had demanded that you don't do a certain thing? And the moment they leave town, that's what you're doing? The moment you get out of the house, you go to college or whatever, you're right there. So 
you're doing the right thing while your parents were looking didn't mean you were doing the right thing at all. It just meant they were imposing that. What God sees is their repentance and reforms under Josiah were superficial. It didn't really deal with the heart. It was in deception, not with her whole heart. Are you really serving God or are you just pleasing your parents or pleasing your wife or husband or whatever? You know, God saw through the charade and it's worse because they didn't learn from their sister Israel. He says in verse 11, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. It's more despicable that Judah was idolatrous than Israel because she should have learned from Israel. When she had the benefit of seeing her sister and what had happened to her, then she is sinning against greater light. She had greater opportunity to know how bad this was, and it did not affect her. Pretty outrageous. Comments and questions? Not, not only um, did Judah have the experience of Israel, they had their own experience because Israel Israel forsook God in, Jer in Jeroboam's days and stayed that way for 200 some odd years. Judah kept coming back and they kept revisiting God's blessings and his outpourings of mercy on them kept coming back for those and still threw him away time and again and that is to me what makes it worse even more so than just having the example of her older sister. Good point, yeah. Yeah, I mean how many reform movements were there in Judah's history and how many times did they turn right back to idols after the, the king had turned them back to God? Good point. Other questions comments, Cameron? In verses 2 and 9, it says that they polluted the land. What exactly does that terminology mean? Well, this is God's land. I think they put up their idol altars and images all through God's land. It would kind of be like you're married and your wife puts pictures of her boyfriend all over the house. She's polluting the house. I think that's the idea. Maybe even have the boy in to spend the night while you're gone. You know, polluting the bed or whatever. Just really gross, not the idea. Good question. Other questions and comments? Kimberly. Mm -hmm. This shows us true repentance is we confess our sin and God and repent and right afterwards that we show it how we live. You know, we change our life around. We don't just confess and then go back to it. That's exactly right. <laughs> Confession without a change may just be manipulative. You know, maybe you've done that again with your parents or something like that, where you say, oh, I'm sorry, and you say all the right words, but you go right back to it. That sometimes is just, you know, you're trying to, you, you need something right then. You want your parents to give you something, so you say what you're supposed to, but it never goes any deeper than your lips. The thing of it is, God always knows our heart. So he always knows whether we're sincere. Other thoughts? Okay, uh, would somebody read 12 through 18? Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. 
I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and increased in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. Do you see what God's doing in verse 12? Who's God inviting to do what? He's, he's inviting Israel to return to him. Huh. Wonder why he's doing that. Israel had been unfaithful to God, hadn't they? And when he invites Israel to return to him, who is Jeremiah's audience here? Judah. Judah. He invites Israel to return to him. What's he trying to do? Make you the jealous. Exactly. You know, he's kind of snubbing Judah to show their guilt and make them jealous. Remember what Paul said in Romans 11 about the calling of the Gentiles, that the hope was that would make the Jews want their blessings that the Gentiles were receiving. Kind of the same idea. I am gracious. I will not be angry forever. God's offering to allow Israel to come back was certainly not deserved by Israel. It was God's grace. And it's amazing that God would invite Israel back because of what he said at the beginning of the chapter. By law, the first husband could never return to the unfaithful wife who'd remarried. But God is overriding his own law by his grace because he's so eager to be reconciled to his people now that is not automatic what did Israel have to do to receive this reconciliation verse 13 acknowledge their guilt absolutely that is indispensable it is absolutely required that we take responsibility for our actions that we admit our sins that we humble ourselves to confess. Is that easy? You know, in one sense, that is amazing. That's what God wants. God could want things that were so much more difficult. God is asking us to humble ourselves and acknowledge to Him with grief. We've heard Him. Anyone can do that. That is accessible to anyone. But on the other hand, that is so emotionally difficult for us because of our pride. 
You know, the hardest thing and the easiest thing is to confess our sins. It, in one sense, it's very easy. In another sense, it is so difficult. But that's what God requires. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Psalm 51, and things like that. So, if Israel will, conf will confess, God will receive Israel back. And he's hoping that Israel will accept the offer. And he's hoping from that that Judah will become jealous and want to return to God as well. Comments and questions on 12 and 13? Yes. As a parent, I understand that because that, that's what the heart of it is. It, it doesn't really matter so much what was done. It's the rebellion that matters. Yes. yes. It's amazing that the, it's, the, it's the confession, the humbling of ourselves that is the key to restoring the relationship. We think we've got to earn it. But forgiveness is not earned. But forgiveness doesn't come without the confession, without the humbling of ourselves. Those are basic Bible principles. But those basic principles hang us up. Other thoughts? Look at the blessings that will come with their confession and reconciliation. He will bring them back to Zion. You know, God will will make them his true people again. He says, look at verse 14, Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you. Do you know what the word master is in Hebrew? Baal. I am a Baal. Originally the word Baal meant master or lord. And then they loved that idol so much they called him master or lord. But God wants to be their Baal, their master. Return and make me your husband, is what he's saying. And then I will bring you to Zion. And look what he does. In verse 15, what blessing will he give them? What kind of shepherds? Yes. True, faithful shepherds who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. That's one of the blessings God would give. He'd give them good leaders. I love these passages when it comes to understanding the role of shepherds among Christians today. We have such inadequate understandings in many places of what the role of elders is. This is a great passage. They feed you on knowledge and understanding. That is a great summary of the role of an elder, but it's the blessing that God is offering his people if they will come back to him. And in verse 16, what blessing is it? 16 and 17. You see what he's saying to them in 16 and 17? Going to be fruitful. That's true. They'll multiply and increase. And what else? There's no ark because the whole city of Jerusalem is now the Lord's throne. Yes, exactly. In other words, 
We don't need the ark because God's going to be present everywhere. Jerusalem itself will be God's throne. They wouldn't need some symbol of God's presence because he is going to be present in their midst. He is promising to be with them. The highest blessing God has ever offered to man is his presence with us. That is the return of the state in the Garden of Eden before the sin. The close fellowship of man with God. That, that God walks with man. That we have the blessing of his being with us. That's what he's offering them. Based upon their confession and repentance. That he would be with, him, with them. But they must not walk anymore. After the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. So he's offering them to unite them together. So we've got their return from the captivity, faithful shepherds, God's presence, a transformed heart, unity among them, and some of the blessings that come from their confessing their sins and returning back to God. If that isn't enough to make them humble themselves and acknowledge their sins, what could? Just such amazing blessings. Comments and thoughts. John. What does it mean in 14 when he says, I'll take you one from a city and two from a family? I think it's the remnant idea. So it doesn't, it's doesn't not have to be everybody. It's the ones who return to God. Yes, I think so. Good question. Gannon? Just going back to 12 to 14 when he continues to repeat, declares the Lord. It seems like he's trying to establish, like, this is the Lord speaking to you. The Lord is not like the gods that you go after. Um, it's not like these idols you serve, but the Lord is so much greater than that. Good point. Yes. God is speaking to them, and he is a great God. Other questions or comments? Kim, when you repent, there's, you're right, there's all these blessings that come with that, because I know if I didn't repent, I wouldn't be here. Yes. So. yes. And they're really good blessings, Mm-hmm. Indeed. It's well worth it to repent. Stephen. There's got to have something else in mind. I mean, certainly the return from captivity, but ultimately the messianic age where God is literally going to come and dwell with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Do you, do you see anything like more specific in this passage other than just God coming back to make Jerusalem his dwelling place and the ark being no more and things like that? Well, I think the ultimate highest fulfillment is in him great sending Jesus and, and God being with us in that sense. There may have been a, a kind of a foreground fulfillment in their return from captivity and God's presence with them in Jerusalem. But if so, I think that's the shadow and the reality would more be the coming of Christ. And just another question. With the Ark of the Covenant physically, did, did that come back after the temple was destroyed? As far as we know, no. Okay. Yeah. We, we have no real knowledge of what happened to the Ark after the destruction of the temple. It's in that big warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever. Kind of stuff. All right. Other questions or comments? Then 19 to 21. But I said, how can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the, host of, of the hosts of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father, 
and not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me. The house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate hill heights, weeping in supplications of the children of Israel, for they have preserved their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. So, um, what did God want? Relationship. Exactly. God longed to bless them. He longed to be close to them as a father. He really hoped things would work out. You know, it, it helps when you see God's heart. If God is longing to be close to them and to bless them, then how does it affect him when they stray from him? Yes. We don't think enough about the emotion God feels when we stray from him. It hurts him. He wants to be close to us, and he really does want to be a father to us. You know, we see God's hopes, and then we see them being dashed. You know, surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God had made a, a great emotional investment in these people. He cared about them and loved them and longed to be close to them. And so it hurts him so badly. You've seen maybe even, um, you know, in, among your friends. This can be either gender, but I'll present it as this. You know, you take a guy who has a girlfriend and he loves that young lady. And he dedicates himself to her. He serves her. He seeks to bless her. He, he cares so much for her. He, he's emotionally, you know, committed to her. And then she lightly, you know, starts developing some relationship with some other guy. How does that feel to that boy? It breaks his heart. It's devastating. That's the Lord. Except it's marriage. He was committed to us, loved us, wanted to do everything for us. It breaks God's heart when we turn away from Him and we begin to flirt with others who are trying to take God's place in our life. You think about this. I thought about this recently. If you are a man married to a woman and you know there is some other guy that's trying to develop this special relationship with your wife. What do you think if she kind of opens the door to him? What do you think if she starts going out to eat with him? She starts talking to him on the phone. You know, she starts texting back and forth with him or whatever. How would you feel about that? My first thought would be where did all go wrong? Yeah. You'd be pretty outraged, pretty, pretty, pretty upset about that. You don't have contact with that guy. You are not to respond to his text. You're not to take his phone calls. You know, whatever. Do you see why God wants us to keep ourselves unspotted from the world? Do you see why God wants us to be very radical in renouncing 
our relationship with the things that are trying to replace him? You know, whatever it is that, be, that is our weakness, whatever relationship we're, we're you know, susceptible to, cut it off. Turn your back on it. Because God is hurt when we, when we betray him. Comments and thoughts on 19 and 20. Kimberly. But we betray him anyways because we're very selfish in the relationship. Yeah, that, we don't care about how he feels. Or... Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that not that the reason for betrayal even in human relationships? It's selfishness. In this case, very foolish selfishness. It's not in our own best interest, but it's what we feel like we want at that moment. Look at verse 21. He says, a voice is heard on the bare heights. Now look back at 3.2. You know, lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see that's where they were trying to ambush lovers. And you look at 7.29. And cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the bare heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. So the bare heights were bare. And waste because of the, their unfaithfulness there and God's punishment of them. And what God is doing here is, is showing how sad this was. As this devastation is engulfing them. They've forgotten God. The, the heights are bare. God is punishing them. God is withholding the rain and all of that. This is very hard for them. But God is doing this to them because they've been unfaithful to their relationship to him. Comments and thoughts through, through 20 points. He doesn't say, does he, who they're weeping to? Uh, he doesn't. I was assuming they were more or less just weeping to themselves and grieving this, uh, this you know, the consequences of their sin. Somebody got a well, they could have still been calling on their idols. You know, what happened? Come help us. Could be. That'd even be worse, wouldn't it? Boy. Kimberly. You see a lot of problems um, with idols in the Old Testament, but I think now we still have the same problems with idols. It's so easy for us to make things for anyone an idol now. Amen. Just like they did back then. Amen. You're right. Okay. Uh... 22 to 4-4. Return you, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God, truly in vain is salvation, hoped for the hills, for from the hills, and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youths, the flocks of their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame, and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be weak, and you shall swear. 
the Lord lives, in truth and judgment and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn so that no one can quench it. Because of, your, because of the evil of your Now, this is a really powerful passage. Look at what it's doing in this context. He is inviting these unfaithful sons to return to him, and he's offering to heal their sin if they will. But now, here's what he's doing. Returning requires some things. And so I believe in this context, God is more or less going through the steps that it's going to take for them to come back to God. This is a little hard to know how to read. Some people might read this as things they were actually doing, but it's pretty hard to see in Jeremiah's day that they actually did these things. I think it's more the Lord laying out for them what repentance would look like. He's almost giving them the repentance protocol. <laughs> you know, repentance for you, turning back to God so I can bless you, means this. It means that you are the Lord our God. Now one of the things, perhaps the fundamental thing that's required to come back to God is to see God as the one and only true God and Master. We have to give Him that place in our life. And we have to see in verse 23, the hills are a deception. We have to recognize that the places of idolatry, that the idols then, are empty. They're futile. They're useless. That's part of what it takes to come back to God when we have developed our own idols, our own pet sins. We have to acknowledge that the Lord is our exclusive God, and we have to acknowledge how empty those idols are that we keep turning to. They're a deception. They look like they're really going to help us. They look like they're really going to mean something to us. They don't. That's a part of the process. And uh, then a confession that the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. He is the only one who can save us. And then a confession of guilt in 24 and 25. The shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth. We lie down in our shame, lot our humiliation covers, for we've sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day, we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. That is the kind of confession that they need to make from their hearts to God. If they had sincerely repented, if they had turned back to God, if they had confessed this from the heart, the rest of Jeremiah's work would have been unnecessary. <laughs> this would have ended his ministry right here because if they come back with that kind of an attitude, 
God can receive them back, and he would, and he would bless them again. But they've got to clearly acknowledge their guilt, their wasted years, and there can't be any excuses. That is the hard, that's one of the sticking points. You know, is this idea, as we keep coming back to, recognizing the guilt, the sin. So he says, You've got to see the Lord as your God. You've got to see how empty and deceptive the idolatry is. You've got to see that the Lord is your only Savior. And you have to confess your guilt in 24 and 25. And those kinds of terms where you are not making excuses, where you are humbling yourself and you're fully taking responsibility. We have sinned and this is how bad it has been. We want to minimize guilt. We must not do that. We must give full, thorough confession to our sins. Comments and questions on the end of chapter 3. Bill. Let me, I fully agree with what you said. It has to be acknowledged and complete brokenness of heart. But then as we know, as he forgives, the guilt is taken away. It's like David to get back up after Psalm 51 and press forward again. Good point. That's exactly right. The sins of the past humble us, but they must not uh, be a burden to us and drag us down. Good point. I agree. John. So, back to verse 21. Do we see this as a part of the this picture that God is painting? Uh, and so again, yeah, this this uh, weeping, if it fits this picture, would be a, a weeping of, of true repentance. Could be. I'm taking the weeping of verse 21 as being the, you know, crying over the consequences for their sin. Yeah. You know, the grief because they're suffering. But if it fits with 22 and following, then it might be his exhortation that they need to grieve their sins. Yeah. So that's always hard in some of these books is to figure out exactly what the point is. So, Kimberly. I definitely see here that true repentance is after we repent, we must really try to get rid of that sin in our lives because when we don't, you know, we're going to do it again. And we see it over here. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, true repentance. We grieve not the consequences of our sin. We grieve the sin. There's a big difference in that. Most anybody feels bad that they are suffering. That's no, there's no virtue in that. You feel bad when you suffer. Do you feel bad because you've done wrong? Are you grieving what, how you hurt God? Or are you grieving how hurt you are because of his punishment? So this has to be the grieving, the sin, and, and, and what you've done to God that leads you to change, not just to try to beg for blessings. Thoughts? I think I see this, I get the chance to study with men in prison. And you seem to see this play out, that they're, they're broken hearted and they're, they, it seems to be uh, honest. You're right. 
and, 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 and you hate to think otherwise that, that, that now they're truly seeking the Lord and they're, they're, they're sorry over their past lives and they've turned their lives around. Unfortunately, what a lot of times happens is as soon as they get out of prison, they go right back to their previous life. And, and so it's, 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 you know, is this really true repentance or not? You know, and sometimes it's easy not to see that difference because sometimes it does look very genuine. I think sometimes we think it's genuine in ourselves. You know, and we need to maybe uh, be more um, serious about examining ourselves in that. Because it is easy to grieve the consequences. And if that's all we're doing once the consequences are lifted, we'll go right back to the sin. You know, and, and so I think we really got to think about that more. Because it's not just the guys in prison. I've seen that too a lot. But it's all of us a lot of times. That man, when it feels bad, when it hurts us, that's one thing. But do, does it grieve us that God is hurt? And do we really want to commit ourselves to the Lord's way? You know, sometimes we're too concerned about feeling good. If it feels bad, this is bad. But, but we've got to be concerned not just about how we feel, but about God's feelings and about what, what hurts Him. David? And in the Bible, it says, you know, it talks about how Satan had changed the heart of, or deceived Adam and Eve, you know, he can see the save the day. But also, when David was going up against Goliath, you know, God was there to help him. And he's here to help us every day, when Satan's deceiving us. Yeah, the deception is not inevitable. It depends on our attitude. Yeah. Well, if, if I could, the... Sure. I want to recognize the pain of caused God, but I think it begins with a step. It shouldn't end there that I've recognized that I've hurt someone else, I've hurt a brother or sister. And then when I recognize that pain, it helps me connect the triangle to say. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and isn't that a hard thing for us as well? You know, we may grieve that we've lost the relationship with someone. Or we may grieve the fact that they are upset with us. But do we grieve what we've done to them and hurting them? In other words, there's a lot of difference between self-centered grief and, 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 and grief centered on what we've done to someone else. And I think a lot of times we grieve self-centeredly, almost feel sorry for ourselves. But the, but the humbling of ourselves before God and before others, that's a different emotion. And, and so you see here, I mean, they are not just saying, man, this stinks that we're not close to God anymore. They are talking about their shame, their humiliation, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. It's more of an objective thing than it is just, wow, this hurts us so bad. They are acknowledging they have not acted properly. Do we acknowledge that? And, and deeply acknowledge it as opposed to just saying the words. 
You know, if you know with your parents that saying I'm sorry is the magic words, you'll say I'm sorry. But if it if, if just is a mechanical, this will get me where I want to go thing, that's not good enough. God wants us to have a grieving heart. He wants us to love him. And therefore, when we love someone, we don't want to hurt them, disobey them, betray them. In this life, like, I definitely strive more to be happy than to be holy like God. Yes. We truly need to strive more to be holy. Because we're holy and at the end, when God comes, we'll be able to be happy. When we want to be happy, we're focused on our own selves, our own feelings. When we want to be holy, we really want to honor the Lord and be what He wants us to be. Yeah, forget about our feelings. We are in this culture where we, we want to feel good. Well, that's a great recipe for never feeling good. <laughs> when that's our goal, it won't happen. You know, feeling good is a byproduct of doing well that often at the moment feels bad. Now look at chapter 4. He's the same thing. If you will return, O Israel, to curse the Lord, then you should return to me. Yeah, we've got to return to God. That, that's a very powerful statement. To go back to Him. And that requires putting away your detested things from my presence. We've got to get rid of the wicked things. We've got to back up our words with our actions. If they're really serious about God, they're going to get rid of those idols and all that pertains to the idolatry. These are radical demands. But that's what it takes. You don't repent of your alcohol problem and keep the beer in the refrigerator. That doesn't work. You get rid of the abominations. What is your sin? Get rid of everything that pertains to it, however hard that is. You can imagine them repenting of their idols and storing their images in the closet. You know, that doesn't work. We have to... to well, do you remember what in um, the, the city of Ephesus, when a lot of people turn to God from their sorcery and trust in magic? What did they do with those books of magic? They burned them. 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books of magic, they burned them. They didn't just put them on the shelf and promise they wouldn't read them anymore. There's a difference. So he says, you know, put away your detested things from my presence. Get rid of the wicked stuff and don't waver. You've got to be steadfast in this. You know, our serving God and our repentance can't just come and go like the wave. You know, you've got to be persevering in that. It, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. You know, an exclusive loyalty to God. Then God will create a people that will fulfill his promise to Abraham. Then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. So you return to God, you put away the detested things, you don't waver, and you make God the one you're exclusively loyal to. And then in verse 3, break up your follow ground. 
or fallow ground, I don't know what the best uh, uh, pronunciation of that is, and do not sow among thorns. What is this fallow ground? Well, it's just lying there, right? I mean, nothing, nothing, it hasn't been tended. Yes. Unplowed ground. Just, just, you know, uh, hasn't been worked. And so he says you've got to turn over that follow ground. Take a new start. You've got to clear away all the garbage, all the undergrowth, all the brush. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's no-till farming these days. I don't know a lot about that. We never did that. But, but some, sometimes they do where they don't even plow it. They just plant. Well, that's not this. We need to plow. We need to go into the untilled parts of our heart and life and turn over a new leaf and take a fresh start. And repentance can't be superficial. It has to be deep. It has to plow deeply into our soul. You know, break up the follow ground. Don't sow among the thorns. Here's the thing. You've got to get rid of the wicked. You can't just tack on, glue on some good stuff. You know, you can't say, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to keep doing my sinful things, but I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to read more chapters of the Bible, but I'm not going to change. I'm going to say more prayers, but I'm not going to get rid of the wicked. The wicked things. We've got to turn over our life. We've got to get rid of the wicked, the evil, the sinful things. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. The foreskin would imply the sinful activities. And circumcision... At least for anybody other than a baby, would be a very painful thing. There's a lot of blood and a lot of pain, and yet that's what you got to do. Cut out of your heart all the sinful activities, all the lust, all the wickedness. Anything that keeps you from being exclusively devoted to God, cut it out, no matter how much it hurts. That's the idea here. That's what it takes to come back to God. Or else, my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now, you've got two choices. Either you go through all this or I'm just going to burn you up. But there, there are not many passages that are more explicit as what it takes to turn back to God than 322 to 4.4. That, that's a very thorough explanation of what repentance and return really involves. It is not as light a thing as sometimes we take it. Comments and questions on all that. Yes? Um, back with the break up your fallow ground, when I first read that, I kind of thought more um finding the unplowed places in your heart and maybe taking new approaches to that repentance to try to really get that sin out of your life. Very good. Amen. That, that's what we got to do. Are there some, you know, sometimes our repentance is selective. Are there some places in our life and heart that we've just never really turned over to God? 
You know, God, I'm willing to repent of everything except my pet sin. Now, this pet sin I won't give you, but everything else you can have doesn't work well. Kimberly? Thought you. Um, it reminds me of James chapter 2, verse 36. It says, For just as the body without the spirit does, also faces that works is. So you've got to back it up. Yeah. yeah. Other thoughts? Stephen? That breaking up the college around Hosea used that in Hosea 10 verse 12. Uh, I love the verse. He says, "Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you." And again, like God withholding the rain uh, because of what they're doing is like break up your fallow ground, and God will come back and rain righteousness on you, so that you can bear fruit. And then the interesting, you know, sow not among thorns. I wonder if there's any connection to like the parable of the sower a little bit there and, you know, getting the thorns out. Um, so that even if, you know, you are sowing, but you're not removing the thorns, it's going to choke and not bring forth fruit. Very good. That's great. Yeah. No, just going back to the circumcision thing. Like, after, I mean, I think it's circumcised as babies now, so it's not really a big experience. But I guess for them, um, especially Abraham being circumcised as an old man, they probably lay around for a few days being sore. Um, I'm not going to go into the explicit details, but just kind of like focusing on that being a really painful experience and just being really painful in the beginning, but then later on, they're thankful that they were. I think it can be really easy for us. Um, when it is really hard, and I know for myself, when it does get really tough to give up those things, um, I lose focus of who I'm doing it for and what it's going to be like after I do it. You know, when I was a kid, well, I worked with my dad all the time in landscaping, and one of the things we did was we put down a lot of garden bark, and we had gloves, but half the time they had holes in the fingers, which is probably not where you want the holes if you're uh, sweating garden bark. And uh, I'd get these splinters in my finger, and, well, you know how it is, it hurts to dig those things out. Mom would do that, and she'd do it pretty well, but sometimes it would hurt so bad I wouldn't want her to do it. Well, you wait a day or two, and guess what? <laughs> the experience is even worse. You know, sometimes we don't want the pain. You know, cutting this sin out of my life will hurt, and we... we draw back from the pain, but it doesn't help us. It hurts us. The longer we leave that in, the more painful the experience is. There are worse things than pain. So what, however hurt we are in cutting out sin out of our life, it's for the best. <laughs> I think just the general truth about life is that you're not going to be able to go through life without experiencing pain. And here, you either go through the pain of repenting and circumcising your heart and turning back to God, or you're going to go through the pain of His wrath and His punishment on you. So it's really just a choice of, do I want pain now or later? <laughs> yeah, and the later is the worst pain. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. Great way to put that. Other thoughts? All right, good discussion. Great passage. So many things to really uh, give thought to. We're going to take a little break here.